This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Easiest Weight Management and Smart Eating Program for Weight Loss, and the author, Philip Hamrick. And Phil joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Phil. Thanks, Steve, for having me on. Well, great to have you with us. And first of all, congratulations, because you're not just talking it, you're walking the walk. And you've lost 220 pounds and still got some weight to lose, and we'll get into the details of how you did that and and some of the struggles along the way, but you're certainly uh, on the road to conquering this weight problem that you've had for many years. Here's what you say about your book. Here is a book using my easy five-step weight management program that will help you learn to eat and develop good, smart eating habits to lose weight and to keep it off. I guess that's really the key, isn't it? We not only have to lose it, but we got to keep it off. Yes, that's true. Um, a lot of diets, uh, people go, that's what I call a diet as a failure. Uh, people go on diets, they lose their weight. After they lose their weight, then they go back to their old eating habit. And then once they do that, they gain their weight back plus more. So the book I put together is to not only help you to lose weight, but to teach you to keep it off once you've got it off. So let's go way back and figure out how in the world did you get to be 440 pounds? I mean, you're five what? Five? How, how tall well, are you? About five nine. Five nine. I mean, 440. That's a big guy. Uh, it's a five X size. Uh, five you know, X. Five X would be. Uh, and it has a short person. Well, I can't. I'm not sure. I guess I'm medium height. Yeah. Five nine. Right. But I was very very broad. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, uh, many years of overeating. Uh, obsession with food, uh, being a food addict, and uh, um, loose, loss of control, basically, of food. You know, I would eat anywhere, uh, eat anything, and not have any accountability to what I was eating. So this is what I had to learn. Just wouldn't think about it at all. Just whatever. If it tasted good, you're going to eat probably more or twice as much as you needed to eat. Well, that's correct. Instead of a piece of pie, I'd eat half the pie. Right. Now, you say that this uh, food addiction is worse than having a drug addiction. Yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, food, uh, a lot of people, okay, a lot of the, my friends I talk to, a lot of people uh, in meeting on the street uh, agree to the same thing, that uh, food addiction, and people don't understand that they have it, is that uh, we crave food all the time, and, and it's really available. Uh, we have it in the office, at home. Um, it's no matter where we go, there's free samples of something someplace. And, uh, once you get hung on this, you, you just seem to eat all the time. And that was my problem. Everywhere I would go, there'd be food and I just couldn't resist it. And so I had to basically learn to eat all over again and how to control it. And one of them is to find uh, the different parts of food and what makes them up in order to, you know, why am I actually gaining weight and what can I do to get it under control uh, lose it and keep it off. So you wouldn't call this a diet? No, no. Uh, a diet is, a, a, I, I consider a diet a failure. A diet is where you, you cut out certain foods, where you limit yourself to what you can eat. And after you lose your weight, then you get back to your old eating habits and you usually gain your weight back you know, plus more. And I did that a couple of times. I've actually lost 100 pounds a couple of times and then I'd always gain it back because I'd go back to my old eating habits. And this is one thing you can never do the rest of your life. You have to learn to eat smart, uh, be able to control your size and portions, and lose the weight. And then once you get it down, you have to be able to never go back to your old eating habits, and you can maintain. And my plan, which I have in my book and stuff, is you can eat anything you want. You have to be able to define what you're eating and how much you can eat. What would you say was the biggest breakthrough uh, when you finally discovered that you could be in control? What was the thing that helped you the most? Um, parents. Uh, my parents and able to do things that I couldn't do before. 
Mm. Once I started losing the weight, uh, my weight started going down. Um, appearance was a, a big part of it. And then also, uh, uh, I also implemented exercise with it. You don't have to do that, but I did that because that helps your, your overall body and your routine is if you can do some type of exercise program. And I was going to where I couldn't hardly go, uh, we'll say, 100 yards, maybe 50 yards and be out of breath. And now I'm doing uh, five miles a day. So I would add a little bit to that all the time. And as I progressed, I saw the, the improvements, and this also gave me the encouragement to continue, keep it up, and then to go on, in other words. Well, let's talk about step one. What would you say is step one? Okay, step one in the uh, my program, or what I did, what I had to put a plan together. Um, I, I went out on the Internet and did research and stuff, and, and I put a plan together to, and the biggest thing you have to figure out is what your metabolism is. Because if you eat more than your metabolism burns, um, you're going to gain weight. And this is what I was doing. So I had to actually go in and identify, uh, number one is, is what I was eating, uh, or my metabolism rate, and then what I could eat during the daytime to maintain that weight. And then I had to figure out what I needed to do to get down to a certain weight. My metabolism rate at a certain weight would be different than my high weight. So I had to figure out which one that was, get within that uh, range of eating to be able to lose the weight to get down to where it's called the target weight, I guess. When you talk about a diet, obviously that word die is in it. Nobody, you know, they feel right. like they're going through pain. Uh, this kind of program with eating uh, smart, are you eating well? I mean, do you enjoy eating? Oh, yes. You can, like, you can eat anything you want. It's, it's mostly portion control. You have to learn what your portion controls are. Um, and, and that's the biggest thing is you have to – in the front of my book, and the, guys, the best thing, and I, you know, I went to college and I knew some things, but I – didn't know a lot of the things that like made up like a calories or made up of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And you got to know how to put those three elements together to generate a calorie. So as far as eating, yes, eat healthy, and I encourage eating healthy. But then on the other hand, um, if you, you you don't want to deny yourself anything to where you're going to break your diet. If you say I'm not going to eat any of a certain food ever again. After a while, you're going to start craving that food, and then you're going to break down. Next thing you know, guess what? You're going to start eating it again, and then maybe more. And then it goes to excessive. So what I've, I've tried to do, and I don't, I don't deny myself of anything, but I do limit myself to certain portions so I don't overeat. Well, let's get down to the very bottom line, down to the nitty-gritty, if you will. What is a calorie? A, a calorie is made up of a proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And there's 3,500 calories in a pound. So um, I, was, I will use me as an example, okay, of weighing. I want to weigh 200 pounds. I want to maintain my weight at 200 pounds. So I've estimated my calorie intake of being about 2,000 calories a day to maintain my weight. Now, if I go over that, I know when I do, I will gain weight. And anytime your body stores more than 3,500 calories, it's going to, that would be equal to gaining one pound. I like what you say and you emphasize smart eating program. And so and I can, we can all tell that you have become smart about this because you've studied, you've done some research, and of course you're uh, providing all that in your book so we don't have to go out and spend all that time. There it is. That's correct. I, I tried to put as much, you know, I tried to put as much in the book that I had learned myself to try to teach as many people as possible. Because I see these uh, diet fads advertised all the time. We live, we live in an easy society. Hey, you know, you're overweight. Take this pill and you'll lose weight. And I tried those things. Believe me, I'm experienced on those things too. I actually tried them and found out they don't work. Or if they do work, it's limited time. And you're paying somebody some big bucks in order to, uh, you know, do that stuff that really all you have to do is, is it doesn't cost anything. Just live normal, eat smart. And, you know, and add, if you want to, an exercise program, stay active, you know, get up, move around and, and do things besides sitting on the couch all day. And your body will improve. 
Well, it's amazing that in a two-year time, you've lost 220 pounds. Uh, how much do you weigh right now? I'm about 210 right now. 210. I want to get down another 30 pounds. 210. You're 5'9". Uh, you know, you're, as you put it, you're half the man you used to be, but you're twice as smart. Right, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and what keeps me going is the area I, I walk in. I, the whole, I walk in a town. And I've had uh, numerous people pull over and tell me how, you know, congratulate me and how well I've done. And also have people stop me on the street and congratulate me because I inspired them to get out and lose weight and exercise. And so then I talk to them about their diet program. And then uh, people around also, you know, talk to me about, you know, well, how did you do it? And and so, uh, yeah, it's like spreading the word and helping people out uh, to, to encourage them to get out and do it. And also uh, routines that they can use. You may not be able to lose weight the same way I do, but what I put in my book are different tools that you can use to put together your own program. So you, it, it will work for you, in other words. Well, you're half the man, but you're twice as good looking, right? <laughs> well, I don't know whether I could judge that or not. <laughs> but you certainly look a whole lot different, that's for sure. That is amazing. So, Okay, let's get down again to the nitty-gritty here, down to some of these technical things. Uh, what's the BMR? We hear about that a lot, the BMR. Your BMR is your, your basal metallic rate. And that's, uh, if you're at rest, uh, what your body burns a day to exist. So if you just lay in bed all day and don't do any exercises or have no activity, it's the amount of calories that your body burns to exist. And then, of course, there's the active me metabolic rate, the MAMR. Right, and that's your rate when you it's your activity rate through the day. So if you uh, walk a lot, you uh, do a half hour or an hour of exercise a day. Um, construction workers, uh, it's your activities through the day added to your BMR, and that, that's your overall metabolism. Okay. Which tells you, like, say, my metabolism is an estimated at 2,000 calories a day. That's my uh, uh, basic metabolism. So uh, that's so, what those two things. So are. it's important to know that. And it's important to know that with your own weight and management and smart eating, all that goes together. Correct. Yes, that's why I put that in my book. Yes. So, what foods do you eat? Anything. Anything. What foods do you I really... I don't deny myself of anything. Really? Steve. I mean, you know, even... What was the thing that you used to, uh, so-called, if you'll forgive me, pig out on? What was the foods you used to really pig out on? Uh, again, there's no food that I really learned myself. My problem with the biggest thing is, is like, buffets. Ah. I have to watch going to buffets and stuff. Uh, uh, the other thing I put in my book is how to eat at home and at restaurants or out, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. you go to restaurants and stuff and you get twice the portion. Oh, that's right. Order. So, so what and do you do you when you down. what do you do when you go to the restaurant and you get twice as much as you really should eat? What do you do? Yeah, what I do is uh, first thing I ask for is a take-home box, and <laughs> I'll divide uh, the stuff that doesn't taste good reheated. Yeah, I will eat, or if it's bad calories or whatever, a lot of times I'll leave. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll get a take-home box, and I'll divide it in half, and I'll take half of everything home with me. So you do that right before you start? You well, I mean, e yeah, either way is I'll sit down and I'll, you know. Oh, the other thing you can do, you know, a lot of people order the 16-ounce uh, steak because they want it extra thick. You can order an 8 or 6-ounce steak, you know, type of thing. Okay. And then evaluate what they put with it. But a lot of times your portion size is, is a lot more than you really need. Mostly if you – now, if that's your only meal of the day, okay, maybe. But a lot of people eat throughout the day, and then they go out to dinner, and uh, next thing you know, you've overeaten. So, yeah, that's the first thing I do is um, – even before I leave is I get a take-home box, and I'll divide the meal in half, and I'll take half of it home and eat as another meal. Well, you used to be a 5X, now you wear a large, you've taken 19 inches. Listen to that, everyone, 19 inches off his belt. Wow, <laughs> that is amazing. Well, just the time we have left, Phil, uh, help us, uh, just encourage us, give us some motivation. How do we, uh, you know, how do we push back away from the table? Um, again, it's uh, being able to, identify what you're eating. If you can identify what you're eating, then you know how much that you can serve. In the old days, I mean, and they've always preached out the uh, portions in the, when, 
in the early days were smaller. And as long as we go, the restaurants are competing. So what are they going to do? They're going to put more on your plate. You go to the fast food restaurants, they're going to make your burgers bigger and fatter, and they're going to add more to it. The thing is, is to identify what you're eating. And the same way with the, the big burgers and stuff, you can order the big burgers, cut them in half, eat half, and you can take the other half home and eat later on. But the encouragement of it is, like you say, your health is uh, uh, to be able to do more, to be able to uh, look better in your suit. Uh, you know, once you start doing those things and recognize what's really happening to yourself, it gives you an encouragement to, to uh, do this. And that's what I try to put in the book is to, uh, um, you know, how to eat, where to eat, try to define what the food elements are and stuff like that. So you can eat anything you want, try to cut your cravings, and then you have to do this. To, I mean, it's, it's a life change. You have to do it the rest of your life because uh, other than that, uh, like myself with the food obsession, I will gain my weight back. We've been listening to Philip Hamrick. Phil has written his book, The Easiest Weight Management and Smart Eating Program for Weight Loss. Phil, tell us how to get your book. Um, Author House has it online at their, um, uh, I guess, bookstores, and I guess you can go online. And um, yeah, you can go on. Author House has it, and a couple other places do too. I'm sorry, I don't have that information. Well, you can go online to any. A retail bookstore online and order it like Amazon or Barnes and Noble. I think Amazon also has it. I uh, sure. saw one of my listings here that had it. Great. But definitely Author House is the uh, producer of the book, and they, they definitely have it. Right. AuthorHouse.com. Fantastic. Well, Phil, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. No problem, Steve. Nice having you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Lab, The Cleanse, Begins. And the author is Jay St. James, and Jay joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jay. Hello. We're going to learn about who we might be working next to at work. Who knows where they're from? <laughs> so, uh, so you say this and a little bit more about your book, The Lab. It is an out-of-this-world and of-this-world adventure that will make us question reality. We hear a lot about aliens. Are they not different from us? Uh, are we the aliens? It's a matter of the social pecking order. So you're you're uh, giving us a lot to think about and 
who knows, it might be more real than fiction, wouldn't you say? Well, that's what um, I'm hoping um, that the reader would go away questioning, like, well, hey, you know, who is this person? Where, where, you know, are they really, are they really uh, one of us kind of deal? And the, I know that a lot of the alien stories have the, um, you know, that the aliens are lizard people or some humanoid type, type right. but not quite. So the the premise is that the aliens are enough like us that they blend in. Well, I think they, I've always thought the aliens would probably look just like us, you know, so that mm-hmm. would, <laughs> that would make your story really intriguing because we wouldn't know who is who. Well, yes. tell us about yourself, uh, Jay, first, and, you know, a little about your background and how all this came about. How did this story come about? Okay, um... This was in, I was, I know, I was going to college in, um, it was like 1997 is what I want to say, and I was walking across campus, I was talking to my husband, and I worked full-time at a, at, at a factory, and so usually, like, by the end of the school day, I had been up for at least 24 hours, let's say. So I was in kind of a sleep-deprived kind of stupor, kind of, you know, just thinking out loud, and we were hoping for or speculating on the plot of the next Indiana Jones movie, actually. So, and it was like one of those deals of, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if it was, you know, like da 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 And then all of a sudden it kind of like spun off into this whole new kind of scenario. Um, the, the lab does have kind of this um, male archaeology type, but then after that the similarities kind of disappear because it is kind of an more of an alien, the world's in peril kind of um, story, or as the plot. And then um, the um, the bad guy, the villain in the story, is a um, a cardinal at the Vatican, and but he's not really a cardinal. And that's part of the whole thing is that there's um, people in certain positions that are just cover positions. And they're actually undercover aliens for, um, as a way to describe it. Well, I've got a couple kids that could be uh, practicing aliens. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, different agencies around the world, uh, like, for example, the Catholic Church. There's members of the Catholic Church that that's what we think they are, but they have such a worldwide reach. They're communicators. So they handle the communication on and off the planet and kind of interplanetary communication. And there's other agencies like, say, um, intelligence organizations around the world that quickly misdirect and misinform us to kind of keep us in the dark. So deception and, deception and misinformation is the key. Yes, yes. So, so um, basically, we're lab rats. You know, we're kind of, we're, we're lab rats. And instead of coming right out and saying this, um, if if um, if if people get kind of close to the the truth about what's going on, they'll be you know like a counter story or oh that's just a bit of, you know that's a hoax. And that's what basically the UFO um, most of the UFOs and stuff are played off as. Oh well, that was just a plane or an experimental this or that or um, just lights in the sky. Um, so all keep us kind of in the dark and not really know the truth. So and they're purposely doing it, you know, which um, which a lot of people there's some people that speculate that that's going on anyway. Right, right. Uh, nobody. Well, a lot of those people they don't trust the government in any of their information. Yes, and so it's kind of playing on that kind of, you know, taking a little bit of, of the reality that we do experience and kind of like twisting it and, and giving it a bro- another explanation. So we have two research scientists. So first of all, tell us about uh, uh, Dr. Alexis Fox. Oh, okay. Um, she is, um, uh, well, both of them, both of them are kind of, they're married to their work, but she is particularly just a tenacious researcher, and she um, specifically studies uh, cures and vaccines for um, contagious-type, plague, plague um, pandemic-type diseases, um, so like SARS, AIDS, um, anything. So uh, working with the, the CDC 
uh, that kind of thing. And what she doesn't know is that her lab, uh, where it's located, is actually one of um, a satellite lab of this um, a satellite uh, lab of the home lab, which is on another planet, and that she's actually working for this um, this other uh, research lead, which is Dr. Tamor. And he's an alien. Uh, and he's an alien. Uh, yes, she is. She is. And Dr. Okay. Tamor is a, um, a female. Okay, yes. so she's the alien, and Dr. Fox doesn't know that she's an alien, obviously. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, she actually has an alien working in her lab, and she doesn't know until it's later revealed that, oh, yeah, and other professors around the campus um, are are aliens. But um, just like uh, the normal university, like it, let's say there's money uh, for a grant that goes out to, to uh, research a particular, I don't know, a disease whatever it may be. Right. The grant is spread around to several different labs. So this isn't uncommon. It's kind of something that already happens. But in this case, it may be multiple planet distribution <laughs> where there, you know, so in it, there's mention that um, some of the off planets or the, the other lab planets are some of the other ones in the solar system. So does Dr. Jacob Stone, is he mm -hmm. closely associated with uh, Alexis Fox? Yes, yes. They're, they've been dating for a while. That you know, They keep talking about getting married, but you know, it's just like one of those deals of they're too wrapped up in their work. And so is Dr. Stone aware of aliens at all, at first anyway? Uh, no, 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 not at first, no, no. They, they're kind of brought into the whole knowing about what's going on um, when their help is needed. Uh, once the the the, uh, the cleanse order has started, and um, what they're using the research that um, Dr. Fox is working on, which happens to be, and she doesn't realize this, she just thinks that she's working on something that's that's um, common to the to the Earth, but it's actually what she, uh, the results of her experiments are going back being back reported back to the home lab. Which turns out to be some. Actually, she hits um, a um, a viable vaccine for a plague that is on the home planet. So they're using that as an excuse to stop the cleanse. And the cleanse basically is is basically just like, okay, I'm done with this petri dish. We're going to wash it out and start all over again. So the cleanse is much more uh, than a, a lab kind of uh, practice or process. We're talking about genocide? Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. And if you read through the, and as you go through the book, there's like local cleanses, and that's how some of the genocide has been explained. And, you know, like, um, um, I don't know if I gave that exactly, like some... Some of the genocides, local genocide, I think it's just been, uh, it was just in general, but, um, you know, like maybe their, you know, population, um, you know, either a plague. As a matter of fact, the Black Plague was listed as a, um, in the 14th century, was listed as a, a local cleansing. And, um, but that's what, um, or, you know, like maybe there's a war or something that, and that's a, and that's a cleansing. Um, and it's just kind of just, those are localized, but a complete destruction um, or, you know, and, and, and part of it plays on like the end of the world scenarios. Um, and when I was writing it, the whole, it was before the 2012, that latest one with the Mayan calendar, and there's a mention about the Mayan calendar in there too. Um, but yeah, that's basically what it is. And at the end, the villain does say, he goes, this is, a, this is an asset of the home lab. The Earth is just our asset, you know, an asset that we will do with what we please, kind of thing. And if we're, you know, if we want to redeploy it or sell it or lease it to somebody else, that's our prerogative. So we can cleanse the Earth's population, and then it's worth a lot because then somebody else can take it over. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah, and what they're uh, the the one of the plots that they're they're working on is they actually want to use it for something because believe it or not, the volcanic ash on the Earth is worth a lot where they're from. Ah, okay. So. All right, well, that makes sense. <laughs> somebody's uh, you know somebody's waste uh, you know somebody's waste is somebody else's treasure. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. And one of the ancient alien theories um, that's out there, which is where I got some of the far out stuff. Um, I, let me think. I can't remember where. I don't know where it came from, but uh, but it's on some of the ancient alien stuff. Is that aliens came to the planet and used the people on Earth or created the people on Earth as just minions to mine the gold for them. So that's what we were to begin with. That's mm-hmm. what the people were to begin with. Mm-hmm. And that's from some of the 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 like way back some of the stuff. So the idea of, you know, wanting to, you know, just come in and mine resources isn't necessarily a new idea. So the book challenges our basic beliefs of existence, uh, even our religious tenets. Mhm. I mean, you're you're uh, doing that on purpose. Just the kind uh, and of, that is why I do not want my employer to be associated with it in any way. <laughs> I don't want to offend or bring, you know, uh, discredit on my employer, but, um, so, or make fun or disrespectful, but part of it is sure. kind of... that's part of the plot, know. right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's part of the plot, which uh, would obviously be a very strong kind of... Uh, uh, using religious tenets is more like brainwashing and propaganda then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And also, um, some of the, it's mentioned, and there's a few things that, you know, people have speculated on, and and I'm not totally making all this up. At one point, it was like, well, you know, this is a new idea, this is a new idea. And I kept, the more I researched, it's like, wow, these ideas are really, they're out there. Yeah. Um, so I'm just kind of like bringing them all together in a in a fictional story. Uh, not all of them, because there's there's thousands out there. Well, but, um, especially when you go back in history and see some of the you know prominent uh, uh, dictators and others who conquered great lands, they had their own agenda that probably would fit right into it. Yes, yes, yes. The one that I made um, mention of was Hitler, and mm-hmm. part of what he was doing was um, an experiment, and mm-hmm. it had gotten out of hand. So you know, and the you know there was there was stuff like a lab protocols were violated, so he had to be taken out, kind of deal. And so a lot of the technology transfusion, and there's been a lot of speculation that there was an alien involvement because the Germans were so far ahead as far as technology by the end of World War Two. The um, lab um, overseers, uh, you know, realized that, hey, there was something going on, and he was getting kind of um, ahead of himself. And there was also, you know, social experiments like in power um, and, you know, people in power kind of thing. So it basically he had to be taken out, and, it, you know, and they realized everything that had gone on. Um, um, and um, so your book really helps us with history. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of, a, kind, of, kind of an alternative, right? Right. Well, I love it. I love it. Now, just as we wrap up here, uh, Jay, you called your book executive fiction. Uh, explain what that means. Yeah, I was just trying to get it. It's kind of it's a short novella, right? And uh, you know, um, if you've ever read like a, um, which I'm sure you have. A magazine, like a, especially like a big business magazine, and uh-huh. have, uh, the art, long articles will have an executive summary, right? Or like they call the Reader's Digest version. Um, it's it's a short. It's um, it has all the fun and action of a large novel, but you don't have to commit all the time to it. Well, it sounds like a great uh, adventure. This science fiction, the lab, the cleanse begins, and this is uh, just first one in a series, right? Yes. So will we continue on with uh, these two scientists? Will they be in the next ones? Yes, and uh, it will explore kind of more of their personal life. Uh, we will meet um, Alexis Fox's uh, mother and father in the next one. We've been listening to Jay St. James. She's been talking about her new book, The Lab, The Cleanse Begins. Jay, tell us how to get your book. Um. We, you can go to Amazon.com. It's available there and through Barnes & Noble, but also at, through my website at outofthisworldbook.com. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages.
Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, President of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. For Author House Publications, I'm Jay Douglas Barker, and today I have the privilege of visiting with author Anise Thomas, who has uh, penned an important book titled I Don't Know Why. Anise, welcome to today's program. Thank you very much. Well, Thank your book you. is described as stories to help adopted children understand why they do the things they do, as well as for adoptive parents and professionals and children who have been adopted. Uh, I'm reading from uh, from the uh, cover of your book, and it looks mm-hmm. like an interesting uh, journey into the story of adoption. Is that kind of describe it? Yes, that's right. Um, the stories um, that I have in my book um, are about four different children. Um, Fiona, Yasmin, Jacob, and Shaniqua, and um, they all tell their own individual adoption stories, each one very, um, different to its own, because um, in, in real life, um, every adopted child has their own individual story. Okay, and what was your motivation for, for actually writing this book? How did you come about to do that? Right, well, um, it takes me back uh, quite a few years now, back to when I was a teenager. My parents adopted my brother, and I got interested then in, in doing children's work then. And um, later on when I became uh, a social worker, the only avenue I went, wanted to go into was adoption work. And so that's what I've done. So uh, the last seven years I've, I've worked with um, a number of children who needed to have um, a new family, um, and that's what I've been doing. And, and my inspiration and motivation really comes from the children because I've seen the lives that they have experienced from very early on and, and how they, they sort of go on and grow up. And, you know, they're very resilient, some of them, and uh, despite all the trauma they've been through. So they're my, my motivation. Yes, and, and did you grow up in the United Kingdom? Is that uh, your, your home base? Yes, I did. Yes, okay. I did. Yes, yes. I, I grew up in, in the south of England, and um, I grew up with um, a loving family and lots of um, happy family memories for myself. Uh, and then, unfortunately, you know, for, unfortunately, for a lot of children, they don't have happy childhoods. Very, uh, you know, very early starts of their lives can be very, very traumatic. And um, they're left um, quite damaged and emotionally damaged, physically damaged. And, and um, this affects them for the rest of their lives sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah. 
And sometimes even growing up in a balanced family environment, sometimes there are challenges, and and I'm sure that this book would uh, kind of bridge that as well, do you think? Um, yes, I, th- I think so, um, because really the, the, the adoptive families want to give, or should I say um, adults who become adoptive parents want to give children a, a normal family life. And they do do that. They do. I, I work with a lot of adoptive parents. Um, I've assessed adopters, you know, to become, and I've placed children with them. And and today my job now is I'm actually working with with families who are in crisis at the moment because they've adopted their children who they love very much, but they're faced with some difficulties. So I I try and support them and try and sort of hold their family you know, uh, um, together sometimes. And, and they do very well, um, the, the, the adults, but it is a struggle for them as well sometimes. Yes. Now, would you say this book is going to appeal to adoptive children's as, children as well as the, the parents, so the adoptive parents? Is this kind of the direction your book was headed? Yes, it is. Um, what I would like for my book is um, I've sort of um, pitched the age range between 6 and 10 years old, but... It can be used for older children or younger children. And what I would like is for the, the book to be shared between the child and their parents. Um, because I, I found that um, working with um, adopted children, they often feel isolated within their experiences sometimes. Not, not because they're adopted, because that's, that's uh, quite a worldwide thing these days. Yes. But um, because of... Some of the behaviours that they may have, they don't understand why they do the things they do, and that's why I've called the book, I Don't Know Why. And the reason for that is that when they've been going through difficult times with their, their birth families, um, they sometimes have distorted thinking because of the, the examples they've been given and things. So they often don't know why they do things. But for the adoptive parents as well, they um, they adopt the child, they love the child, they want to bring them up in a normal family, as I said, but sometimes they think that they fail their children because of some of the behaviours that their children present with, and they think that they've failed them and, and, and feel quite guilty. And I want to let them know that, it, you know, very often for the parents, it's not their fault. Yes. You know, the, the children you know, that they have, they, they love and they've taken into their home, have come with a lot of baggage themselves. And, you know, they do their best um, to love their children. And, you know, I want to, to let them know that they are not the only one in that boat. Now, are you finding this to be the case in infants that are adopted as well as uh, little older children? Are they having those same issues? They are. Um, uh, I would say within the last, uh, five or six years. Um, I'm not sure across the world, but I'm, I know in the UK, um, the children who we're dealing with uh, at the moment, uh, they are, they are um, experiencing a lot of trauma within their homes. Their, 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 their birth homes, there's drug and alcohol abuse, mm. um, there's physical abuse, there's, you know, and so the children, and, and even before they're born, um, I, I, I've worked, I have worked and I do work with children who have suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. Wow. Um, this is where the, the mother has drunk throughout her pregnancy and the children then are born um, with, with the effects of this. And also children, uh, babies are born withdrawing from drugs. And wow. so obviously this affects them and it affects their behaviour sometimes as they get older. And a lot of the times, these children, you don't sometimes see the physical appearance. It's the hidden harm, the, the brain damage that's done, you know, and, and, you know, things like actions and consequences. They find that very hard to, to understand and to reason um, as they're growing up. So, yes, a lot of um, babies are born very damaged and also um, the neglect that they suffer as well because... Uh, very sadly, um, uh, parents may be neglecting to feed them, bath mm. them, and, and give them emotional warmth. Um, and it's especially so if parents are taking drugs or on alcohol, or there's a lot of domestic violence in the home. And so the, the, the babies are, are then growing and depending on their own survival skills. 
you know, and trying to find food here, there and everywhere as they get older. But obviously, if they're infants, they can't. So they, they're just left in their cot, you know, to cry. And then oh, after a while, nobody comes to them. And they stop crying. In, ad- yeah, in, yeah. in addition to your work as a social worker, are there other support systems in place, in addition to your book, that help parents like this and help children? Yes, there are. There, there are many um, um, places. I know um, in the UK we have places um, that offer therapeutic support. Um, there are uh, places um, that, that, that work with the families and, and try and help, you know, with family therapy and also to do um, child therapy as well. So there are, there is, uh, you know, support out there. And, and I believe um, in the UK, the, the, the present government is doing a lot more about that, which I'm really pleased about. Excellent. Um, so, yes, there, there, are, there is help out there. Excellent. How would you introduce your book to a friend or someone that perhaps is not familiar with the subject matter? Okay, um, I, I think I will. I say to them, you know, do you know anybody who's who's adopted, or you know, um, anybody within your neighbourhood or community, and and introduce it to them as you know, um, it, it it's not something that's taboo, you know, yes. uh, to be adopted, and and sometimes um, children, uh, as a consequence, suffer from. The, the 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 poor parenting they've had at the beginning of their, of their life, and so my book is to help those children not to feel so isolated, and and um, and hopefully they will understand and know that there are other children who are experiencing the same as they are. A very good, uh, very good goal in mind. And now, your book, what sets it apart from others that perhaps are addressing this same issue? Um, I think um, I've. There are a lot of books out there for professionals and for adults with regards to adoption. And um, it, it has been my experience that there are a number of really good books out there for children about adoption. Um, but I feel where my book um, is a little different is that I try to tackle some of the issues that children are faced with on a fair daily basis. For example, um, um, mental health issues, um, um, stealing and, and bullying. A lot of children are bullied because they're, they're adopted in school. Mm. So I've, I've tackled that in one of the stories. I've tackled the, um, the issue of um, sometimes children have, when they're in their adoptive homes, they do love their parents, their, their adoptive parents, but sometimes the, the frustration is vented out on the adoptive mum. And... This is because um, uh, in their infancy, obviously, it, it, it's, um, it's their mum who sort of not protected them and kept them safe. And then they go on to maybe um, two or three foster homes or get passed around from pillar to post. And it's mainly um, the female figure who is the primary carer. And so the child grows up thinking, you know, how can I trust this, this female who said they're my mum? And so... You know, they have difficulty doing that sometimes, and so the frustrations are vented upon the adoptive mum. So I've tackled that in one of the stories. And then another one I've tackled um, is destructive behaviour. Sometimes the children, um, because of the confusion that they have in their head about why they, they, they needed to be adopted and the trauma that they've suffered, Sometimes they become very destructive. Yes. Um, they, they may trash their home sometimes. Maybe they just might rip the wallpaper and things like that. But it's, it's because of what they have suffered in the past. And I really want children, I've tackled those issues so children can identify, um, you know, if, if they are going through those experiences themselves. Yes. Now, I have not been able to read the book cover to cover, but my impression mm-hmm. is that your viewpoint is from the child's viewpoint. Is that correct, or am I just uh, un- misunderstanding your observations? No, it is from the child's viewpoint. And, and uh, the reason I've done that is because I believe, um, as well as uh, every child, the adoptive child's voice should be heard. And I've tried to do that by telling um, of, of the individual stories that I have in my book. And, and because I, I, I want 
um, people out there to know this is what adoptive children are experiencing, what they experience as a young, very, very young child. And it doesn't go away. The feelings of, you know, being hurt in the past doesn't go away just because a child is adopted. They, they um, you know, they, when, once they go into their, their new home, they're loved, they're given all the things that they deserve, but the, those past experiences don't disappear for them. So um, I have done it um, from the perspective of the child's view. I think that's an, a wonderful idea to do that. I'm uh, gathering from my conversation with you that your heart is in a, uh, in not only uh, talking about this industry, but also in providing the support and the nurturing that's needed for the children who have uh, some challenges. Yes. Um, yeah, th- this is, I, I feel, um, the more I do this work, I feel it's just, it's not just a job. It, I feel to myself it's a calling, it's a vocation, call it what you may. But I'm very passionate about trying to to give children a second chance. You well, know, because nobody, um, um, we, we don't have any control which family we're born into and what the circumstances are. We're just born and, and you know, and we make the best of, of what we have. That's correct. Um, but, but for children, I feel, you know, if they've gone through a very, very awful start of their life, they deserve to have a normal life, a happy life. And um, one of the things I've done within my job at the moment, I've set up a support group for adoptive parents. Um, we, we meet every other month, and they come together and they talk about their different experiences, and, you know, um, it's my dream one day to have a support group for the children that I work with um, because I don't have, um, I, I can only do what I can within, within um, my, my reach, so to speak, and, and my role um, for where I work. But, um, yes, I would, I would love to do more for the children that I work with. That's a wonderful goal. Again, the title of the book is I Don't Know Why. And we've had the privilege of visiting with author Anise Thomas, who has penned this important book. And I want to thank you, Anise, for joining us today for Author House Publications. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. And for Author House Publications, this is J. Douglas Barker.